Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. Today, my guest is Seth Jacob, a longtime Trekkie and comic book writer. I discovered Seth through his latest comic book, Astrobiology, named after my very own field of study. A year ago, this comic book was nothing more than a Kickstarter campaign, one that I donated to, of course, because how could I not support such a promising intersection of art and science? Now that it's a published physical book, I thought I'd open a subspace channel to the author himself and ask about his process of creating a brand new adventure based on a real-life scientific discipline. In the interview you're about to hear, Seth and I are going to talk about Star Trek's impact on him and his comics, and how he developed the scientific and humanistic themes in this first issue of Astrobiology. And then, and this wasn't planned at all, Seth asks me about my thoughts on astrobiological topics, and I had a really fun time talking to him about hot issues in the search for life in the universe and the future of space exploration. Strap in and engage. It's my pleasure to welcome writer Seth Jacob, the author of a brand new comic book series called Astrobiology to Strange New Worlds. Welcome, Seth. Hi, it's uh, good to be here. So for our listeners who have never heard of your latest comic book, Astrobiology, can you describe it in one sentence for us? Um, It's about a uh, soldier and a scientist working together to explore alien worlds for new forms of life different kinds of, you know, exotic species that change our understanding of what life can be. So that's the basic idea. That's so awesome. Yeah, that's a really big question in the actual field of astrobiology, right? Like, what exactly is life? Are we like most of the other life that is out there in the universe? Is there even life out there in the universe? And uh, if there is, how similar is it to us? And how crazily diverse could it be? Yeah, you know, I mean, when I was writing this first issue, one of the problems I had was you've got to come up with something where if you're in a future where it's very easy to go to other planets, like if you think, you know, Star Trek, they're going to other planets all the time. So in Star Trek, for instance, if they were to fly to a planet and, um, you know, they found orangutans there, that wouldn't be super exciting. (laughs) You know what I mean? It would, you know, I'm saying if they could, you know, so you have to come up with an idea where... The life that they find has to be unique in a way that changes our understanding of life itself, which is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a challenge, you know, because you got to think, okay, if you just find a cactus, really, yes, that's very cool. Like they would catalog it. Like, obviously, that's exciting in its own way, but it's not really going to blow your mind. At the moment, right, any discovery of life out there would be absolutely phenomenally exciting. But like you said, that real fundamental question underlying what actually is life and can we shape our whole conception of what a living entity, a living process is and reshape that 
via the discoveries that we make out there, that's really what calls me to astrobiology. So I've got to say, when I first saw the Kickstarter for your comic on my social media feeds, I immediately knew that I had to help help out in any way that I could uh, and, and give a little bit of money. Because obviously, as a planetary scientist and as an astrobiologist myself, I feel very passionate about those subjects. But I also feel so passionate about sharing the wonders of the universe and the thrill of scientific inquiry with the general public. And that's not always the easiest thing to accomplish, right, as a practicing scientist, because you're always spending so much time just doing the science. But I was so pleased to find out about your comic book because it meant that somebody else, you and your team, were going to extend to the public that love for the universe and all of its possibilities in such an accessible way. So I wanted to ask you, can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to do a comic book about this specific scientific field, astrobiology? Oh, well, you know, I've got to say right up front, you know, thanks so much for your support. And, you know, just thank you for your kind words a second ago. You know, I, you know, the support that I've gotten from people and the actual sort of STEM related fields has just been, you know, mind blowing for me. I didn't really, I didn't really engineer it to be that way. You know what I mean? I just sort of got lucky, I guess, that there was such like an outpouring of support, you know? Um, but in terms of how I decided to do this particular idea, first of all, like the just the name astrobiology is something that I felt was a very good title. So I would feel just that alone was a big thing for me. I worked on a very similar concept with a different artist, uh, Daniel Irizarry. He did the colors for astrobiology. And we kind of worked on these um, short stories where it was a very similar idea, but it was more... It was more mercenary where the main character went to an alien planet and was trying to find a particular type of flower because it was rumored to have very, very powerful like anti-cancer properties. So the idea is you find this flower and then you sell it in the black market for, you know, $10 million. You know, that was the idea. So it was much more mercenary than what I eventually came up with with astrobiology, which is much more you know, of a scientific academic approach. But a big part of the reason why I chose this for something to commit to um, as an ongoing thing is that the structure is very good for storytelling in the sense that you have characters go to an alien world, find a new form of life, and then bring it home. So each issue could be a self-contained thing where you don't need to, like let's say astrobiology were to go, you know, 100 issues deep. The idea would be that you could read any particular issue and get a self-contained story. And then by the end of, you know, 28 to 34 pages, you would have a satisfying story where you wouldn't need to be, all right, I'm on issue 10. What happened in issue nine? You know, it wouldn't mm -hmm. really affect you, which is really, it's really very much kind of the model of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was that you could watch a single episode and you didn't need, you know, it's, it's not so much the, the Netflix binge model, I guess, which comics has moved more towards over the past, you know, 20, 25 years. Where really, astrobiology was designed to be, you could read any issue and all you need to know is these are two explorers searching alien worlds for new forms of life. 
I love that. I, I really feel you. I don't actually read comic books mainly for that reason. I feel like it's yeah, such an right. investment. If I start a story, I kind of have to see it through. Or if I start a story in the middle of the story, I kind of have to read up and do all my homework and figure out what has happened before. Uh, and I feel like that's such a big time sink. And, uh, you know, when astrobiology hit my news feeds, I was like, oh, great. I could launch myself into a brand new story and not have to acquaint myself with this universe and the characters because they would be revealed to me as I read this. But it's also really good to know that this is sort of going to be an episodic kind of thing, just like Star Trek The Next Generation was, um, so that any casual reader who picks up astrobiology number, you know, I don't know how far you're going to take it, but 105, you know, doesn't need to read the first 104 episodes to figure out what's going on. That's awesome. It really is like the Star Trek Next Generation model where each episode was self-contained, but there are threads that kind of enhance the experience. If you've seen every episode, you kind of know, all right, Data and Jordy have a developing relationship, you know, which you wouldn't, you know, if you'd only seen one episode, you might not necessarily pick up that, like, Data became more personable over time. You know what I mean? He mm -hmm. learns that, you know, or, you know, I don't even know, uh, Picard and... Uh, and Crusher, I guess, you know what I'm right, saying? Right. I was hinting at their relationship, you know. Um, and, you know, if you, I guess probably DS9 is more of a, more of less of that. Would you, is that correct? You think yeah, it's more? Yeah, uh, DS9 is more serialized. Right, um, it's right. got these long arc storylines right. that span multiple episodes, even the founders. The seasons. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, Astrobiology issue one hit shelves very recently. I've got it right here in my hands and, uh, you know, flipping through it. It's just it's so awesome. I've, I've read through the story multiple times. And on the very last page in the afterward, you sort of do this very quick history of exoplanet discoveries. And you mention a bunch of inspirational science fiction shows and movies that were created before we knew about any exoplanets, any planets orbiting other stars. And one of those was Star Trek, which premiered in 1966, long before the first exoplanets were discovered in the 90s. So can you talk about maybe how Star Trek has influenced you as a person and astrobiology number one, if at all? Yeah, sure. I mean... I'm not the biggest Star Trek expert. I would say Star Trek The Next Generation, I feel, you know, pretty strongly on. I've probably seen, I'm pretty sure I've seen every episode. I feel like I have a pretty strong familiarity with it. You know, I've seen all the movies. I think I've seen, I may not have seen Star Trek The Motion Picture the whole way through. I may have just seen, <laughs> I'm not sure if I've seen it, but I want to though, actually. I know that's more the weirder. Uh, is that V'ger, right? Or? That's the V'ger one. And yeah, right, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can admit as a as a huge Trekkie, I have also fallen asleep in the middle of Star Trek, the motion picture. So yeah, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not even sure. I don't think I've ever started watching it and been like, all right, I can't take this. I don't even think I've ever done that. I just I've, I've just never seen it. You know, I know that it's more like the 2001 the Space Odyssey of, you know, Star Trek movies. That's more of a slow burn, a little bit boring, perhaps. But um, I guess I didn't really answer your question about, uh, you know, Star Trek. I would say the next generation probably had a fairly, fairly big influence on me. I mean, that's a pretty um, just the the ideas and themes in that show. They're, they're fairly deep and complicated for just a regular, you know, primetime network TV show. Or you think like, you know, just off the top of my head, 
that episode where the guy was on trial because his was it his grandfather was a Romulan, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the episode you know? was uh, called Drumhead. Right. Yeah. Yes. You know, I don't want to sound like an old man. I guess I'm becoming an old man, but, you know, they just don't make them like they used to. But, <laughs> you, know, or it's, you don't see stuff like that on TV anymore. Or like the trying- ethical dilemma over whether or not you should kill the uh, crystalline entity. You know, again, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but they don't really make Star Trek like that anymore. It's more just like, we're having a war with the Romulans and the Klingons. Like, there are explosions, you know, space battle. Like, it's not so much like, I would like to see more Star Trek where they're having a trial to determine if Data can just be dismembered, like dissected, you know, so I don't know. It's the it's the ethical and moral dilemma Star Trek that I like, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think you're trying to bring a little bit of that into your comics as well? A little bit. I mean, in the sense that, you know, with astrobiology specifically, I would like each issue to have an overarching idea that you're exploring in that particular issue. Like in this one, I'm not blowing anyone's minds who's read the comic by saying this. So it's like largely about just the concept of trust. And the reason that I chose that as like a thing to center it around thematically is because, you know, this is the first issue where I'm creating this like Mulder and Scully style partnership between the two main characters. So it makes sense. You know, I'm giving away the game right now. This is how the sausage is made. But, um, you know, it makes sense thematically that you would be talking about trust which is connected to these two partners becoming partners and then that's related to the you know the overall alien that they're trying to get dna from is like it ultimately turns out to be like about gaining the trust of that alien that no we're not trying to uh dissect you and totally destroy your planet like you know we're benevolent force here but it's about that you know it's about that kind of exchange of trust there so you know you could kind of compare that to you know, compare that to the episode where Riker's clone, clone is not the right word, right? His transporter duplicate, mm-hmm. you know, where they're questioning, like, is this right? You know, it's kind of similar. Like, so I would say it's a little bit of an influence in that sense. So I really love the characters that you've created for your story. And like you said, you have this duo who are going on the adventures together. Uh, Let's talk about Dr. Leopold Bell first. He's a professor at Sagan University, which I love, in New Chicago, and is the co-founder of Pursue Labs. So when I read Astrobiology Number 1, I kind of got the sense that this guy is like a far future Indiana Jones, uh, whose day job is lecturing in front of a chalkboard in a classroom, but whose night job is going on dangerous adventures across the galaxy hunting for marvelously unique forms of life is that an accurate description of dr bell yeah i mean i would say that's you know perfect description it's probably better than uh, than i could do it to be honest with you i mean um the indiana jones thing is definitely you know a thought that was in the back of my head and you know with tyrell tyrell cannon who did the art for this like as we were developing the comic that's definitely something we talked about that would be like indiana jones in space you know again i really would want to emphasize that the life that he finds has to be important to find for some reason so for example you know if you found silicon based life that would be like a radical discovery. It has to be stuff that would change our understanding of life itself. So you see in the first issue, you have this, uh, I made up this term, uh, bioplasmogenesis, mm-hmm. which is like 
an organism that could sort of similar. I think I got it from electro bioelectrogenesis. I think. Have you ever heard that term before? I think that's like how you know electric eel. Um, so the idea is if you could find an alien creature that could make like plasma, that would be like fairly crazy. You know what I'm saying? That would that wouldn't just be like okay, we found giraffe on an alien planet. Like it's not that big of a deal to be like. Yes, they have very long necks, like it's an adaptation. Like, that wouldn't blow your mind if you, in your lifetime, had been to a hundred other alien planets, you know what I'm saying? So basically, he finds uh, or hears of a brand new type of trait that life has on this distant world. Right, that and they've he, never seen before. Right, and to go there and sample the DNA of that life form to understand it better for the first time. Um, he needs to partner up with Major Zofia Flores, who is a military consultant for Dr. Bell's Pursue Labs, and she joins him for this adventure. Can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration for Major Flores? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, the idea was basically that, you know, you have one character who is much more passionate about science, passionate about discovery, almost a boy-like enthusiasm for, you know, the wonders of life in the universe. Where then you contrast that with another character who's like, I don't care about the wonders of the universe here. Like, I do not care at all. My main thing is just not dying. Like, that's what I care about. Like, yeah. you know, you could talk about pretty butterflies all you want. but And so the idea is to have sort of a clashing and contrasting of their personalities that hopefully i mean this is the intention on my part to create sort of a driving chemistry that you know keeps you interested in the story if they were both two aloof scientists sort of being like oh yes that's a fascinating tree bark and the other guy's like yes i agree that is completely fast you know that would not be interesting <laughs> like you know that yeah. would be boring you know I, so i got you yeah that's part of the idea but you know a tough female character who has agency i also wanted to make a legitimate point where leo is often wrong you know where he is like yeah we should not be stopping to look at this blade of grass right now like your head is in the clouds basically like uh, the, the idea was that and i hope this comes across in the first issue is that it's not just leo being like Zofia, like, you're a military person, like, you're wrong about everything. And Zofia's like, yeah, I know, I'm wrong, like, you're right. Like, it, the point was not to weigh the scale in favor of Leo. It was to say that they both have equal points of view here, and hopefully they teach each other something. So the idea is, yeah, sometimes Leo... Um, you should not be fixating on this caterpillar, even though the caterpillar is very fascinating and maybe even important to you know, astrobiology, science or whatever, like, okay, if we're in a dangerous jungle, like, really, we don't have time to be distracted by your flights of fancy or whatever. So Sophia is more on that side of like, let's get in, let's get out. But then also, as you see in the end, even she can be touched by like, kind of the miracles of science and so you know, the kind of the wonders of science that they're seeing out, you know, just in the unknown, you know, just yeah. as he could be touched by like, yeah, we should not die. Like, just as he could be affected by that as well. Right, right. Yeah, I love the balance there that they are very complementary to one another and um, their different skills and inclinations serve them in different situations. So they go on this interstellar adventure 
in what appears to be a Dodge Charger, except it's yeah. more of a rocket yeah. ship than a car. Right. Um, and they also travel to other worlds through this gateway in space that you call the Odyssey Arch. Uh, and so I feel like every science fiction narrative needs to have some form of faster-than-light travel, Star Trek at warp drive, Star Wars at hyperspace. And I just imagine that the task is probably infinitely harder for people like you because so much has come before you and you're trying to invent something that is still sort of grounded in science but is new compared to all of that science fiction history. So can you tell me about the challenges and the process of trying to create novel elements uh, like a rocket car, like the Odyssey Arch for astrobiology? Those are really good questions. Um, that was definitely something I was thinking about, which is, you know, if you have to go to alien worlds, a lot of times they gloss over this in TV and stuff like that um, in movies, is that, you know, the nearest planet is going to be, if you're lucky, 10 light years away. You know, and comic books is a visual medium. So how am I going to visually show in a visually interesting way that they travel to another planet? Because if it just involves like, all right, we're going to go into hypersleep for, for 10 years. And also, you have to keep in mind, I don't want them to return back to New Chicago and 100 years has passed. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just for simplicity of storytelling so that it's almost a modular story where like i was saying earlier that you could just do each issue as a self-contained story if i had to say every issue oh 50 years passed in between the last time they were in new chicago that would not be great for me you know what i mean so i had to come up with a way to get around that you know this is showing a little bit of how long it takes for these things to come out but uh around the time I th i'm pretty sure around the time that i was working on this Blade Runner 2049 had just come out. So, you know, there's like the famous uh, like Tannhauser Gate they talk about in uh, the original Blade Runner. You know, they reference like the Tannhauser Gate in the famous uh, Tears and Rain uh, Rucker Hauer speech. You familiar with what I'm talking about? Or So I've, I've read the book. Okay, the, the Android Angular stream X. of electric sheep, yeah, but yeah. I've never seen Blade Runner. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, yeah. you got, you know, they just uh, the final cut just came out on netflix uh you know a couple weeks ago so yeah i mean the odyssey arch was like i'm gonna do essentially what i would imagine the tannhauser gate was like which they never showed you know astrobiology kind of breaks the rules a little bit in the sense of like really you know they go through a wormhole to another planet i'm totally skirting around the idea that like really when they get back to new chicago time should be not just a one-to-one -one thing between their travels and time passing in new chicago right i mean but i'm just i'm essentially saying this is a fun fantastical story it's not really like interstellar or whatever which was very good with this stuff right you know it's very good with the effect of being close to a huge source of gravity like the effect on time and stuff what was that guy uh, kip thorne kip i thorne, guess yeah. right yeah yeah I mean, it's not actual scientific papers uh, yeah. inspired by that right. show. Right. That yeah. Movie. It's not going to hold up to that kind of lens, really, in terms of the the science of space travel and stuff. So that's a little bit of a, you know, I'm admitting is a little bit of like a weakness on my part. Not, you know, not a weakness on my part, but just for this in particular, that was not my main concern to make the space travel aspect of it as realistic as possible. Um, right. You know, for example, with the flying car thing that you mentioned, really, you wouldn't be traveling to other planets in a flying car. It's just that it's cool, basically. It gives you more of an opportunity to do 
partners driving in a car talking to each other. It's just like a classic trope of like, you know, buddy cop style situations. You know, it's like you could have the Pulp Fiction moment of uh, Tarantino and Samuel Jackson talking to each other about uh, the Big Mac or whatever. So you're kind of bending the astrophysics aspect of it to have more consistent astrobiological adventures or more astrobiological adventures. I would almost say that I'm cheating a little bit on that aspect. I'm not, you know, but then again, you know, Star Trek certainly cheats, you know what I mean? Correct me if I'm wrong here. I mean, it's weird when you start to go into a warp territory because what does warp mean? They're in a warp bubble, I guess. They're, They're in a warp bubble in subspace whatever those things mean right what is <laughs> yeah exactly so like are is that correct though they're in subspace they're not even is that mm-hmm. what they say within the, the star trek canon i mean there are various explanations and the the language gets really muddled because they're not really definitive scientific terms so it's up to your interpretation really what's right, going like on warp five means literally nothing like does warp five it just means well, like, does that actually just mean nothing? Five times the speed of light, I guess. Well, uh, somebody came up with a warp factor chart, and I think it's like a geometric uh. increase rather than a linear increase. Oh, okay. Warp five is some many, many hundreds of times faster than the speed of light. Um, <laughs> but this is kind of my point, though. Like, listen, if Star Trek just gets to cheat willy nilly, and like, how mm-hmm. you know, then I do too, right? I mean, this is you know, to be fair, I hope to do other things in the future that are much more scientifically accurate you know you look at a thing like the martian for instance where like interstellar like i mentioned earlier but like the martian fairly strong on science right i mean for the most i mean the one thing i've heard criticism of is at the end when he flies iron man style by you know piercing his glove i've heard that that's you know never gonna happen in a million years you would just spin wildly out of control like a maniac and and die probably (laughs) so that's what i've heard but with something like that i mean listen I'm not here to Neil deGrasse Tyson you and, you know, pick apart every possible, you know, I would say the Martian would get maybe a 10 out of 10 in actual science or whatever. So I'm hoping to do some stuff like that in the future. But, you know, then Star Trek could probably get two out of 10 maybe on on science, right? Wouldn't you say? It uses some aspects of science sort of as launching points to explore scientific questions and philosophical yeah. and ethical right. It's not about like the nitty gritty of hardcore scientific concepts. It's more like, OK, we're exploring the relationship between Geordi and Data in this episode or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're, we're showing that Barclay has a fantasy life in the holodeck. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. even the holodeck itself like is perhaps very bad in terms of the scientific concepts of it because you know to make a solid hologram maybe is something that we'll never be able to do like it might not even be possible right like i always say if you want to watch something where the science is 100 correct you should be watching a documentary right, not yeah. a science fiction show um but you do in astrobiology in your comic you do try to put in some really hardcore science at least on the biological side and i really love how you make this theme this biological theme that you've chosen for your story really mirror the character development 
because the story starts off with Leo and Sophia not really getting along, like at all. And by the end, they've learned to trust each other. Like you said, the main humanistic theme of the first uh, volume or first issue was trust. And this mirrors the scientific theme of the story, which you chose, uh, which is what I want to ask you about. So at the beginning of the story, Dr. Bell has a worldview that is informed by scientific concepts of natural selection and Darwinian evolution that, quote, the strongest will live and the weakest will die. Uh, And at the end, he comes to realize that altruism also plays a major role in biology, that it's not just about competition, but also cooperation. So how did you decide on that scientific thread to run through your piece? A lot of it has to do with, you know, as I'm writing this, I'm looking through like Darwin quote, like I look through a lot of quotes from Darwin, you know, on the first page, I have him kind of paraphrasing Darwin, uh, where he says, you know, all life in the universe is governed by one rule, the strong live and the weak survive. So that's a rough paraphrase of like actual stuff that like Darwin, I probably in the descent of man, I guess, or I'm not, or maybe origin of species or something. I'm not sure mm-hmm. which book it was. So I, I have him quoting that. So we should say uh, Leo on the first page I establish was like attacked by like a flying shark, sort of like a mix between a flying fish and a flying shark. So he was like almost killed by like a great white flying shark. So the idea is he's become somewhat cynical and jaded because of this. So he thinks like, you know, I was dumb to trust that I was going to be protected. You should never trust anything that you should keep your guard up. You know, it's because he's kind of traumatized by this experience a little bit. So I'm cheating here a little bit in the sense of like later at the end of the story, I have him quoting Darwin again, saying something to the effect of like a mother in danger will, you know, run any risk to protect her children. So in theory, at the beginning of the book, Leo would also know that quote already. Right. You know what I'm saying? But I'm cheating a little bit because I have Leo go through an arc from the beginning to the end of the book, you know, so where at first he was maybe a little bit jaded and distrustful. Really, at first, he knows that other Darwin quote that I'm talking about. You know what I mean? It's not like he doesn't know that. It's just that he's not quite being himself. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So he's sort of growing. Yeah, you could, you know, I mean, I'm sure you yourself know, like you could be in a bad place and sort of forget things that you know. You could Mm -hmm. think like, oh, I can't trust anybody. Like when really part of you knows, yeah, you could trust some people. So, yeah, I mean, that was part of it that I was looking through Darwin quotes. And, you know, again, this is kind of like a magician revealing tricks or whatever. But I knew that Darwin had quotes that existed about altruism. So that's part of the structure there. I knew I could quote Darwin at the beginning and make him seem like very hardcore, like only the, you know, the strong survive. You know, I mean, I could I knew I could connect it to that theme of trust, knowing that when I got to the end, I would also be able to quote him again, talking about altruism and compassion. You know, especially when you have a self-contained story like this, the beginning of the story, in my opinion, should somewhat mirror and reflect the end of the story, right? So we start in New Chicago, and then when at the end, there's like what I would call like the return, you know, I have the Darwin quote at the beginning, and then I kind of have another Darwin quote at the end. So it's like, 
in the back of your head, you remember in the beginning, I was quoting Darwin at the end, it kind of, you know, tickles your brain a little bit. They're like, oh, yeah, they're right. You know, you remember the beginning a little bit. This is all stuff that affects you on a subconscious level that you might not be as a reader or a viewer. You might not be consciously aware that it's affecting you. But the point is, you know, it has an effect on you, I guess. That will hopefully give you like a satisfying experience of reading a story, I guess. Emotionally satisfying experience. It, it definitely did. And uh, thanks for explaining it to me because that totally makes logical sense and really reinforces the emotional effect that it had on me. I loved, I loved that arc. I loved it coming full circle that Darwin sort of was the theme that bookended the story, the scientific theme that bookended the story. And I think that it just really mirrored what the characters were growing towards as well. Uh, so I just have a couple of last questions for you. Are there any other scientific themes that you're hoping to explore in future issues of astrobiology? I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to do more issues because I have several uh, things that I'm working on right now, you know, where I'm not sure if, if one or the other were to, for example, be picked up by a publisher. I'd have to, like, devote all my energy to that. So I'm not really sure when I'll be able to do more astrobiology, but I'm hoping, you know, maybe before the end of the year, you'll see another Kickstarter running again. I don't really know. I definitely want to do more issues in the future. You know, off the top of my head, I mean... In terms of some like scientific ideas, I would be interested in exploring with astrobiology. Is like I mentioned, um, like the silicon-based life form, like that could be one thing interesting to do. Um, you read like the short story that I wrote for you, which because this was at your direction, but it was about sort of organisms on a gas giant, which is you know Carl Sagan talked about. That short story that Seth is referencing was my Kickstarter kickback for donating to the project. I got Seth to write me a brand new short story featuring Leo and Zofia exploring a world of my choice. So I'm not like the world's best expert, but uh, I believe they still think could be legit, right? The floaters and sinkers. You know, the question is still out there, obviously. We have never discovered life on any other right. type of world. Right, yeah. But I would say that it's a, it's still a possibility. It's Nobody still a talked about thing, yet. I guess, is what I'm wondering. Or, you know, because... Sagan yeah. was several several decades ago now that that he wrote about that. So I don't know, like maybe today, you know, just the current thinking in academia is just like, yeah, it's not going to like maybe the prevailing idea is that it's not going to happen. Or but I'm just curious, I guess, if they think that uh, it's still a possibility. That's a great question. And I would say that the prevailing thought in academia is actually something that Sagan wrote himself that uh, extraordinary, what was it? Extraordinary discoveries require extraordinary right. evidence, right. something like that, right? You'd have, so, to, you'd have to find it, right, mm -hmm. to be. So, so the idea of life in a giant planet's atmosphere, in Jupiter's atmosphere, for instance, would be an extraordinary discovery. So it would require extraordinary evidence. And, and that means that it shouldn't be our first hypothesis that the reason why maybe there are certain anomalies on Jupiter is because of extraterrestrial life. 
I don't think we can say that we fully understand Jupiter right now, and there's still the possibility that there could be life on Jupiter, but it, we, we, we shouldn't assume it outright. And uh, if there is life on Jupiter, we need to go there and essentially discover it uh, or, or go there and find that we can explain the phenomena on Jupiter completely abiotically. I was just kind of assuming with Jupiter, they're pretty confident there's not any floaters and sinkers there. You know, I was assuming with Jupiter, but I just kind of meant like gas giants in other star systems, I guess, which would, you know, until we can image another gas giant, even then, there's no way we'd be able to image something in such good resolution that you'd be able to see like floaters and sinkers right we can't even do that with jupiter now and it's right here right so that's right exactly so we really don't know that much about jupiter especially beneath its clouds and if there's even life on say our next door neighbor mars right. uh, we still have not really sent the right kinds of instruments to actually right. find it so there could be life there we have rovers there that might be roving over you know subsurface life forms that are couple of tens to hundreds of meters deep, it'll never find them. Isn't it uh, also tough that just like the rover, like you just said, the rovers we've sent there haven't really had the correct chemistry equipment, I guess. They haven't had the correct experiments on board to really be sure, like to really cover all your bases there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's 100% true. Huh. It's very difficult to send something that is complex enough to actually find definitive signs of life. Right, because um, it's not like it's not like you're sending a rover up there, it's going to scoop something out, and then we're going to go back to Earth and analyze it. Like, no, that's not an option. Like, you got to analyze it there on Mars, on the little, on whatever probe or craft you've got. Like, you can't send something back to a lab on Earth. Like, the lab has to be the rover, basically. Right, One, I mean, am yeah, I understanding that's right. that correctly? That's 100% correct. And the next Mars rover that we will launch this coming summer is part of what will hopefully be a series of missions that will do exactly what you said to bring hmm. some samples back to Earth. Oh, really? Yeah. So, well, how this, do they do that? Are they, they, it's going to take, yeah. So, this rover's huh. job is only to select the samples and cache them on the surface of Mars. Oh, my gotcha. Then we need to send another spacecraft right, right, to right. Mars that will collect those samples okay. and blast them off into space. All of the technical details of getting those samples off of Mars and then back to Earth have not yet been worked out. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I got to tell you, I don't mean to be a, a downer here, but, I mean, that is a little bit of a disappointment to me because it's basically like, you might as well just be like, all right, I'm going to make a time capsule and bury it. Like, it's, it's, I don't know, like, they have no plans to actually pick up those samples. Like, really? Like, they're just assuming we're going to figure it out, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really dependent on funding and public right, support yeah. and things like that. And so I'm crossing my fingers that we'll get those samples back within our lifetimes. But some people are very pessimistic about it ever uh, happening. It's interesting how this stuff kind of intertwines with politics basically it's like anything nasa wants to do is dependent on the whole political process basically you know like i'm sure nasa wishes it had you know 10 times the budget that it does have and uh, you know there's something to be said for just like these private space companies i don't know your feeling on that but like they just don't have to deal with like the bureaucracy of like 
if they want to do something they could be much more agile it's just like okay we're going to do it at top speed as aggressively as we want if nasa wants to do something it's like got to go through congressional approval it's got to be like 10 layers of bureaucracy like you know every form has to be filled out you know whereas at spacex i'm not even necessarily saying i'm the biggest proponent for spacex or whatever i'm saying this somewhat neutrally at spacex they could just do whatever they want at whatever speed they want to do it. There's no stopgap except for just Elon Musk, you know, wanting or not wanting to do something. That's the same feeling that I have. That's what, how I would assess the situation, that these private companies can move at a faster pace than NASA can in certain scenarios. The thing that I worry about is when it's a private company going into space, what is their goal? Uh, their top priority is not necessarily science and exploration. As a corporation, their top priority is to make money, right? Yeah, for definitely. their investors. And so yeah. that that becomes almost like the situation in your comic book, where, right. where you have this other uh, right. entity. I forgot what they're called. Um, uh, but they're Crown all, Galactic, yeah. Crown Galactic. So they're racing uh, Leo and Sophia to get this DNA and essentially patent it, right? Right. Um, right. So I worry that the that the private space industry model will eventually lead to something like Crown Galactic, uh, where it's all about greed and less about the intrinsic value of knowledge and exploration. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking a, a little bit about the idea that Crown Galactic is sort of like big pharma, but for space, sort of. You know, they're they're big space. You know, so I am talking a little bit about the idea that pursue. It's kind of like a mom and pop space exploration company where like it's really just Leo going by himself, hoping to make a big break where, you know, Crown Galactic, they're on 100 planets simultaneously, like patenting things all the time. There's also that idea of just like patenting DNA. I think as of right now, today, I think the legal precedent is that you can't do it. You can't patent DNA that you discover in nature. You okay. can do like. You know, if you had a GMO and you created a new gene for, you know, plump tomatoes like that, you could patent. However, if you found like a plump tomato gene just in the population of tomatoes, like I think you can't patent that, you know, as of the law stands right now. But again, you know, this is a comic that takes place a thousand years in the future. So I'm just saying for my purposes that, you know, the law has changed. So you can patent stuff that you find in nature or whatever. So I'm saying I'm making a little bit of an interesting point there that the law within astrobiology exists so that you could just go to an alien planet. Let's say you find a type of grass that, uh, you know, the chemical in the grass makes it so that you live a hundred extra years within the context of my story that like a company could just go there, take that DNA and just patent it, you know? So I am talking about something. It's a little bit of an interesting ethical question of like, who does DNA, who does the, the life code of alien organisms? Like if you could patent that and make a lot of money off of it, like how would we deal with it? You know, I don't know. That's a fantastic ethical dilemma to play with and dig deeper into. Because, yeah, what actually is DNA? DNA is a sequence of letters of chemicals, of nucleobases. And that's just a series of information. And you can definitely patent or at least copyright other types of series of information in our society right now, right? Computer code or right, yeah. uh, a book. You, know, you, you talk about, you know, right now... One of the most profitable things is just data. And, you know, mm -hmm. like you're saying, you know, DNA is data. So if you look at 
again, I could be wrong. Like, I'm just a lowly comic book writer. Like, I'm not like a lawyer or whatever. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a science graduate student. But um, I believe like the 23andMe model is to amass like a huge database of DNA and then they're losing money by running these tests, right? And the idea is you sell a huge, vast trove of DNA data to like pharmaceutical companies so that they could tailor their medicine. You know, so I, I believe 23andMe, they don't actually make money from doing these tests. I think they lose money from doing it. But the long-term goal for them is like sell untold millions of DNA profiles for, you know, $50 billion. Now, I could be wrong, but I believe that's how 23andMe plans to... So that was probably a little bit of an influence for... I don't remember off the top of my head, but I imagine that kind of thinking affected me for astrobiology as well. All right. So we've spoken a lot about astrobiology, <laughs> about Star Trek, about all sorts of cool things. If our listeners have been intrigued by our discussion and want to pick up their very own copy of Astrobiology Number 1, where can they do that? You know, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Seth Jacob on Twitter. Astrobiologycomic.bigcartel.com would be where you could order a uh, physical copy Awesome. And it'll be on Comixology soon as well, which is Comixology is kind of the sort of Netflix of digital comics, I guess. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Seth, for joining me on Strange New Worlds and really diving deep into the nitty gritty of what it takes to make a comic and to make a comic based on science. So Best of luck with all of your projects, and I really hope to be reading Astrobiology number two, not too far from now. Thanks so much. Yeah, I hope I could make it pretty soon, you know. That was Seth Jacob, the author of a brand new comic book called Astrobiology. I loved hearing Seth's insights into science-driven storytelling crafting dynamic characters, and inventing a far-future world based on the extrapolation of our present-day hopes and fears of space exploration. Also, apologies to Carl Sagan for misquoting him. It's actually extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so, it's only fitting that I should end this podcast with it's no extraordinary claim that Seth and his team created a beautifully stunning comic book. But even if it were, there's extraordinary evidence right here in my hands. Until next time, see you out there.